Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm the Bill Arnold part of that sentence. I'm so glad we're going to have this time together for the next couple hours. If you can make time to be with me for the next two hours, I promise you're going to hear some really great stuff. Dr. Brad Sickler is uh, with me in studio. I'm going to bring him on in just a minute. We're going to also have a new segment of the show, which I'm going to call, for lack of a better title, Get to Know a Profession. Learn about someone's profession and how they apply their faith. Walk to it. That's going to be, uh, Sarah Knox is going to be my guest in the second half of this hour. And then the prayer series will continue in hour two with Dr. Peter Kapsner, our special guests today, the one and only Susie Larson and her husband, Kevin. So that's going to be a great, uh, great show. I hope you can spend all of it with me and I hope your day is going well. My first uh, guest is Brad Sickler. He's been on the show several times and I just want him back as often as I can. He's written a book called God on the Brain, What Cognitive Science Does and Does Not Tell Us About Faith, Human Nature, and and the divine. And I told Brad, I said, I can't read this book too quickly. It takes me, it takes me time to get through it. So I kind of read slowly. And he said, well, I wrote it slowly. So (laughs) I think that gives us an opportunity to to go through a little bit more of the book, just because I find the topic and the book spectacular. So Brad, welcome back to the show. Good to be here. I I guess I'm the afternoons part of the, you said you're the Bill Arnold half. Am I the afternoons? (laughs) You're the afternoons part. Right. So anyway, the book, again, I, I dug back into it and spent more time with it. And I have questions. And I also want to just invite any listener, if you've got a question about the brain and, and your God on the brain, let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. Brad's a philosopher, teaches right here at the University of Northwestern. So always glad to have him. Here's an opening question. Why believe something exists? Why? Well, that's a good reason, or a good question, I mean. Oh, good. Um, why believe something exists? I, 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 in the book, I address this, as you know, it's probably what prompted the question. It and do, there's, it a, did. there's a bias towards thinking. Um, so in philosophy, we talk about something called ontology. And your ontology is basically your list of what exists, what's real, what furnishes not only the cosmos, but anything that might be beyond it. So there seems to be a bias that we've developed in the West, you know, starting in the Enlightenment several centuries ago and and the scientific revolution and the kind of move towards empiricism, which is the view that we can only know what we can see and touch and and expose to the senses. And since that movement started, there's been a real strong bias that we should only think something exists if it's of scientific use. So if it isn't of scientific use, if we can somehow manage without it, we should get rid of it. And in some ways, this has been, you know, there there have been some good things that come out of this. Um, so things like, you know, phlogiston, which was supposed to be a kind of energy that infused all living things, and it was thought of as a separate substance. Well, it turns out you don't need that to explain how living things operate, so we get rid of it. 
or something like caloric, which was supposed to be how heat, you know, it was, it was supposed to be heat, basically. Mm-hmm. So the hotter something is, the more caloric it has. Well, you can do without caloric, again, as a separate substance, and just talk about how fast things are vibrating, because that's what really heat amounts to. It's, it's how much something is shaking around at the molecular level. So there's some good that has come out of that. Um, in science, it's helped to streamline things. It, it, it can be an application of the principle of parsimony or Occam's razor, mm-hmm. which says simpler explanations are right. better. But we, all, we, we also know if you take that, that Occam's razor, right, and which a lot of people are probably familiar with, the simpler explanation is the better explanation. We know that's not always true. I, I read a lot of mysteries. Actually, I'm writing a mystery. Maybe when I finish my mystery, I'll <laughs> I'll let you read that too. It'll All be right. easier reading. Um, if I get through the first book I'm working on. Yeah. Well, the, the yeah. So in mysteries, you know, the, the, the big twist, the big appeal a lot of times is that the simpler explanation is what, you know, the buffoon of a police inspector right. always goes for. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's often the complicated and more interesting explanation that the sleuth uncovers that, that really was the truth. And there are lots of other examples about that. I mean, if, if you consider, so let's take that, uh, let's take that premise that we should only think something exists if it's scientifically useful. If you take that to its extreme, really the only thing you should think exists is you yourself. Because you can, this is a view known as solipsism, that solipsism is the view that I'm the only thing that exists and everything else is just uh, happening in my mind. It's a figment of my imagination. Hmm. You can actually account for everything with that. You know, I'm, I feel like I'm sitting here in the studio talking to you, um, but maybe I'm just a disembodied mind that is having these sensations, um, and there is no you. There, I, I think that I'm looking at my hands uh, or not this microphone, but there are no hands or microphones. There's just my mind and my ideas. Well, that would be the simplest of all explanations, wouldn't it? I mean, it, it, it strikes most of us as implausible. But if the idea is we have to limit what exists to the minimal number needed to account for our sensations, then that should be one, just me. But nobody thinks that. So clearly that principle is, you know, it's fine as a rough and ready general rule, but it's not going to work if you try to be dogmatic about it. And what that means is, uh, you know, the sort of flip side is there, there are likely things that exist and are real um, that we don't need in terms of scientific explanation. Um, and why should we bias everything in, in favor of that anyway? Mm-hmm. The viewpoint that the only things that exist are things we need to do science is, uh, you know, that's not a deliberation or a discovery of science. It's a philosophical presupposition that most people have sort of absorbed from the Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And I reject it. All right. <laughs> and just like that. Any further statements or do you just want to go with that? I reject that. I reject it. Okay, good. Yeah. I like that. Um, what about miracles? How does our brain process miracles relative to science and prayer and God? So in the book, there's a, a, one of the things that I do is I talk a lot about experiencing God or having religious experiences. And there have been a lot of really interesting studies about um, religious experiences, what people take to be encounters with God or with the divine. And to study those, you know, they might, they might have um, a Buddhist monk 
do some meditating. And as he's about to reach the peak of his meditation, he can pull on a little string. They'll release some radioactive dye that'll lock in place in his brain. And then they can cart him off to the, um, to the lab and do a SPECT scan of his brain and see which parts were activated during that. And they can kind of map out the brain activity during the, the most heightened part of his meditation. Or they've done similar things with Catholic nuns as they're praying the rosary and they get into you know a quasi-trance mm-hmm. sort of state. Do the same thing, um, you know, study it under the lab conditions. Um, another interesting example is, um, I don't know if you've re- reached this part of the book yet, but the God Helmet, which is... I haven't read that. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, it's a, it's a snowmobile helmet fitted with a very low energy... Um, magnets that creates a magnetic field in the person's brain and it can simulate uh, the experience of feeling someone's presence in the room even though there's nobody there like a strong felt presence Um, so the suggestion from all these things is you know this gets back to the simplicity question that you asked earlier why think something exists Um, it gets back to that because what they're trying to do is to say these people think that a god exists that there are divine beings that have visited them um, or that they, you know, unify with the divine somehow during these meditative or religious experiences. But, say the skeptical reductionist scientists, we can brush all that aside because now we know it's just a fluke of their brain states. They mm-hmm. just have found a way to manipulate their neurons and, and excite certain regions of the brain and let others go dormant. And that's all there is to it. So when you read the scriptures, um, you're just hearing people report about the weird things happening in their brain. So what's what's wrong with that? Um, have they have, have the neuroscientists succeeded in now explaining religious experience, or really more to the point, explaining away religious experience? I mean, a couple of things to note about that. One is those laboratory created experiences are not really very much at all like what we hear about in scripture. So consider the dramatic stuff that you hear about in scripture, you know, Abraham's vision or Ezekiel or Daniel or Isaiah, um, all of these people having visions, Moses in the burning bush, having these encounters with, with God, um, not to mention all of the things in the new Testament as well. Peter's vision of the sheet or the, the man from Macedonia or mm-hmm. the, the dream about the, uh, that the Magi had or the dreams that um, Joseph had, all of those things, Mary being visited by an angel. I mean, there's a ton of stuff in both Testaments that is really dramatic, supernatural encounters. And if all of that is just to be brushed away as malfunctioning brains, then the Bible is utterly destroyed in its credibility. So part of the, part of the concern that I have is... Um, not being careful about what's shown by the science and what isn't shown by the science. So most of us um, would say that as integrated beings, unions of spirit and body, um, it's not at all surprising that our brains are involved because our brains are part of who we are when we encounter God or do anything else, see a giraffe or eat a potato. I mean, our brains are involved in all of those and in processing and understanding those sensations. So it's not at all surprising that, you know, brain states um, can be correlated with certain types of experience, including what we could call mystical experiences. Mm-hmm. But those aren't like what happens in the Bible, and they don't really touch on 
some of the more important things about encounters or relationship with God, such as, you know, slow, the slow process of sanctification as the Holy Spirit works in us. Um, the sense of conviction of sin, again, as the Holy Spirit leads us, um, or the understanding of Scripture as we read it, perceiving it to be God's truth as we encounter it. All of those things are, again, very unlike the uh, laboratory conditions that are, that are studied. So we hear this propaganda that the scientists have kind of debunked or mm-hmm. demystified all this stuff, and now we can all chalk it up to just misunderstanding the brain by primitive people. But the reality is they have done no such thing. Right. So I reject that. I reject that too. <laughs> so we've agreed what on one thing. What else can I reject, Bill? No, we've rejected that, this together. You and Good. me together. We, we reject it. Yeah, and I once saw a giraffe eat a potato, so there you go. They, I know they like sweet potatoes. They love sweet potatoes, They yeah. do. Yeah. And they, yeah. big black tongues come out and Ugh, yeah. take it out of your hand. And... <laughs> All right, I think I should take a break because I need to think of my next question. Okay. Because you're way over my head, just so you know. But that's okay. Dr. Brad Sickler is my guest, and he's written a very provocative, interesting book called God on the Brain, What Cognitive Science Does and Does Not Tell Us About Faith, Human Nature, and the Divine. Be right back. back with Dr. Brad Sickler. He's written a book called God on the Brain, What Cognitive Science Does and Does Not Tell Us About Faith, Human Nature, and the Divine. Interesting comment that just came in from a listener, uh, Brad, and here it is. Uh, you're going to find this interesting, and I think it's going to be exactly what you're talking about. Okay. All right. Here, Lay it on me, big daddy. What, yeah, here's what it said. Just want to give my two cents. There's no way that God's miraculous hand doesn't still bless people. I was in a car after we spun out and I was waiting for the ambulance to come and my friend and I were waiting in the car because his neck hurt and I heard the voice of God say get out of the car and I dismissed it and then a second time I heard get out of the car now and after we got out of the car and walked to the side a tractor trailer came by and smashed into the car and dragged it about a hundred feet so I know that the miracle of God wow. still exists today. Yeah, that is exactly what we're getting at here because the, the skeptic who wants to just reduce everything to brain states, um, you know, says that there are no experiences of God. There are no encounters with the divine. Um, it's all just malfunctioning brain states. I reject states. that. Good. Way to go. <laughs> now you got it. <laughs> but that's exactly what's going on here because the the person clearly did encounter God and, totally. you know, the experience bore that out, that that was not just imaginary, and but a skeptic would just chalk that up to coincidence and say, you know, maybe the, the blow to the head did it or maybe whatever else, uh, natural cause, but it couldn't have been God. But that's, again, that's just, that's not what the science shows. It's not even close. And, and I don't think it's ever what the science could show, no matter how advanced it gets. Mm-hmm. So we got to learn to discern what the science shows and how things can be interpreted versus, um, you know, what's, so let me say that again. There, there are lots of ways that data can be interpreted. If you're a skeptic, if you're a naturalist, you can interpret that that way. You can say, ah, lucky coincidence. Mm -hmm. 
um, you know, you imagined it, whatever. You can say that and you can go home and eat your dinner and not be troubled by it. But you can also say, no, look, the whole worldview that I have um, following Christ and adopting his theistic worldview that God cares about us, interacts with us, speaks to us, directs us, convicts us, reforms us, all those kind of things, that is also consistent with everything that the science shows. So part of what I try to do, a big part of what I try to do in the book is um, to just say, you know, in Christianity, we, we teach that we are spiritual beings made to know God. And in the book, I try to basically defend that against the challenges that are coming from this kind of skeptical reductionist wing of uh, people arguing that the brain um, is all we are, that we're just bodies, and that our tendencies to believe in God are basically an evolutionary accident and they're untrustworthy and we should give them up. So my book is an attempt to defend a biblical view of, of personhood and of uh, the reality of God interacting with us in our lives. Mm-hmm. Brad, what happens in the brain when we make decisions? Um, well, that, <laughs> that's an interesting way to ask the question because as what's known as a dualist or somebody who thinks we are not just our bodies, I would say that that's actually um, an activity that involves the brain and the mind or the spirit. Okay. So um, what happens in our brain, you know, various things get activated as we deliberate our choices. And, um, you know, it's incredibly complicated, far more complicated than I can explain myself. But I would, I would resist saying what happens when we make a decision is just what happens in the brain. Mm-hmm. Because the, the mind, the spirit of a human is the, the locus or the seat of their mental life. So the mind, the spirit is not itself reducible to or identical to the body. And that's kind of the traditional Christian teaching about the mind or the spirit. It isn't just a shadow that sits there and doesn't do anything. It's, it's the seat of our mental operations. It's the thing that unifies our experience. It's the thing that um, really even centralizes the activities of our brain as a sort of transcendent agent. And there are some interesting studies that suggest that. Um, there are studies that suggest the, the brain really needs a, you, you can't account for all the things that happen in the brain um, and how fast they happen, which is another part of it, um, without having a centralized locus of control, which itself is not a part of the brain. So there are some brain studies that um, a lot of dualists like me, um, including people who know a lot more about the brain than I do, you know, I'm, I'm primarily a philosopher, um, but they, they think these brain studies actually not only um, are consistent with a, a Christian biblical view of human nature, they're actually in favor of it and against the reductionist, we are just animals with brains kind of view. We only have a couple of minutes left, but um, the mind-body interaction, mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of talk about mind-body um, I would love for you to say a little bit more about that. Yeah, the mind-body connection. 
And people talk about this who don't really even believe that we have minds as well. I mean, they'll talk Serious. about just our, our mental. I reject that. Our mental life. Good. Yeah. yeah. Man, you're getting in the um, spirit. Yeah. Of, I had another, this is great. another listeners <laughs> say I reject it. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> But the mind and the body are, you know, again, the, the teaching here is that they are uh, separable substances, but uh, while we are embodied, they are, act as an integrated unit. So um, there's a view of human nature that was Plato's view, that the, the mind is in the body the way a hand is in a glove. But that's not really the, the traditional Christian view because that makes them, you know, as Descartes put it, I don't, I don't observe things happening to my body like a pilot in a ship. I feel them. So I am unified with my body. My mind is unified with my body. They're conceptually distinct. I can talk about a mind and talk about a body in totally different ways that don't overlap. But they're also metaphysically distinct. The mind is a separable substance, which for now is unified with our body and we'll survive the death of our body and we'll one day at the resurrection be embodied again in a glorious resurrected body. So the mind is really the seat of our personality, but that doesn't mean that we can discard or diminish the body or, you know, deny that the brain is a, has anything to do with our mental life because it does because we are integrated spiritual beings. We're, we're body and spirit combined or, or as Descartes again put it, so closely intermingled as to form a single unified substance. Fascinating to think that our mind goes with us into eternity. Right. And that's by God's sustaining power. Mm. I mean, there's just so much to unpack here. Like, we have to think, we have to understand that what we are moment by moment, whether body or soul, is owing to the sustaining creative activity of God and if he were to withdraw his sustaining hand, we would go out of existence immediately. We don't, we don't have kind of momentum that just keeps us going in existence. That's what the scriptures teach when they say he upholds all things by the power of his word or, mm-hmm. or that in Christ all things hold together. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. Or Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. Um, so the teaching is moment by moment, we are entirely dependent on God for our existence anyway. So it's not like we don't depend on it now, but then we're going to depend on it when we exist as a, in a spiritual state only. No, we're fully dependent on God for any existence we ever have embodied or not. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's really interesting. Brad, thanks so much for taking the time to come in and, and have this conversation. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, it's it's really, I have to think about it. I have to digest it slowly, but you do such an amazing job of explaining it. So thank you. Yeah, my pleasure, Bill. Dr. Brad Sickler has been my guest. His book is God on the Brain, What Cognitive Science Does and Does Not Tell Us About Faith, Human Nature, and the Divine. We'll take a short break. When we come back, Sarah Knox is going to be joining me. She's got a very interesting profession. We're going to learn all about it and how she applies her faith in it. Be right back.
going to try a brand new thing on the show today. You know, the more I think about people's interesting jobs and professions, it makes me want to get to know how they do what they do and how they walk out their faith in their job and uh, how God has called them into a certain profession. And there's so many professions that I know very little about, and I think it would be really fun to learn what people do and how they came about doing it and how God has led them into the profession that they have. So today I'm going to start by introducing my guest, Sarah Knox. She's she's a professional auctioneer. Now, how many of you <laughs> know much about auctioneering, except you have to talk fast? So that's uh, probably the only thing we know. Let's learn a little bit more about that job and how she walks it out. She's been an auctioneer for over 10 years and has helped thousands and thousands of people raise millions of dollars to make this world a better place. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So glad to be here. Yeah. Now, I'm always curious, is this a family business? Is this something that your dad did or your grandpa did or your uncle? That's a good question. I get that a lot. Um, no, not no one in my family has done this before. Yeah. Which is not typical of this Industry. profession. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the auctioneers I know, they're it's a third or fourth generation thing. That's right. Because how yeah. else would you be drawn into this? <laughs> exactly. Um, for me, I just went to an auction once. Honestly, that was it. I went to an auction. I thought that looks so cool. So I went home and Googled, how do you become an auctioneer? This was about in 2006 or 2007. And, um, there auctioneer school, there is auctioneer school. Uh So I went on down to auctioneer school in Mason city, Iowa. Um, did not think too much about it before I went. Like I signed up, took all my waitressing money at the time nice, <laughs> and paid for it and drove on down there only to find out that in fact, most people came from auction families. And I'm like, hi, I'm Sarah. I'm from Minneapolis and uh, I have been to one auction. Yeah. Like I'd only attended one in yeah. my life. I was interested in learning how to do that, except they wanted me to talk fast. And that had, that's when I got, I said, no, not interested. <laughs> The whole talking fast part, you know, you got to be ready to do that, huh? You do have to be ready to do that. They train you a little bit. You yeah. could probably do it. No, no. I'm, I'm just, you... I'm just glad that others <laughs> are willing to do it and not, uh, not me. So I'm, I'm fascinated that you go to auctioneer school and how long does it take you to become trained to do this? Oh, it's a huge commitment. It's 10 full days. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, in a row? Yeah. 10 days in a row. Yeah. It's oh, like, see, that would, kinda... that would have killed it for me. Oh yeah. yeah. I know. It's just investing your whole life into that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of like auction camp is more what yeah. you're looking at. But it's 10 days and it's 10-hour days and half of the day they spend talking about um, the different areas of auctioneering. Yeah. There are, you know, fundraising auctions, which is what I do, or there's what most people think of, like farm auctions or sure. state sales, all sure. of those things. So all the different areas of business that you could go into uh, once you get through graduation of being an auctioneer and then the other five hours a day is just straight bid calling training teaching you how to do that chant that everyone knows and thinks of when you're an auctioneer right so do they teach you about the psychology behind the job i mean you have to get into people's heads and figure out a way to motivate them right yes they teach you a little bit about that again it's 
a 10-day course. So there's only so much that you can get into. More of that I really picked up through actually doing the auctions and learning more about uh, psychology as a whole because I focus on fundraising aspect of Mm -hmm. it. So while my auctioneering part, it has a lot to do with that fast-paced closing the sale, uh, the the call to action right then and there, hurry, 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 you got a bid or you're going to miss out this mm-hmm. of auctioneering. Uh, what I really do a lot is entice an audience and show them how their generosity can bring fulfillment to them, right? So speaking to them on their level to explain how the organizations I'm working with, how they can become a part of that and how they can find meaning through their generosity, through giving to them, through partnering with these nonprofit organizations and really helping them connect with them on that level. And then the auctioneering is really fun along with that, but it's really about connecting my audience with the organizations. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot put on your shoulders when it comes time for you to do your thing Mm-hmm. because they're counting on this being a pretty important part of the evening yes. and they want to have as much excitement and they want you, they want you to help communicate to them how critical it is that everyone who is in the in the audience can participate now i always think that when it comes to auction the most fun i watch is when the most number of people participate yes That's correct. Yeah, it's so fun when we can get the whole audience together in on that. And I'm sure you, I mean, I know we've done actually events together in the past. Yes, we have. We were talking about rain and sarcoma. Um, We, you see those audiences come together. And when you have an auction during a fundraising event, you have maybe five, six, seven live auction items. So you have a room of 250 to 1,000 people, whatever it may be. Not everyone gets to bid on those items. So the most exciting part is that moment where we get to bring the whole audience together and work together as an audience and as a room to meet a specific goal and to really partner with the organization. And it's so fun to watch people at whatever level they're able to give. It's my job to make them feel impactful. So whether you're giving at that $25 level, Mm -hmm. I want that audience member, that person who's raising their hand or maybe silently, you know, putting it in an envelope or typing it in on their phone. I want them to know that that impact, that choice to make that gift is impactful. Mm-hmm. Not the number itself. It is their choice because especially as believers, it, it's really following through on our faith through generosity mm-hmm. and our faith and our obedience to God with what we've been given, regardless of how much that may be. It's that act that makes such a difference. And God can do so much with so little. And he's the one who multiplies that generosity. And so it's so important for me when talking to this audience and seeing everyone come together at whatever level it may be, the energy that comes out of that. I mean, you've seen it yourself Mm -hmm. in these rooms of when you're fundraising with that many people, the energy is so high and it's so big and people leave so fulfilled. It's a lot of fun to be a part of. And I just love it. Yeah. And Sarah, I think we can probably talk about the adrenaline that happens and the joy and the euphoria that people get mm. from giving. Yes. You know, you talk about a, a euphoria buzz and when a crowd has enjoyed a live auction, people are kind of a little bit of on a high yes. because if they have given and they've had some fun competing against someone else to try to outbid, 
and they have done so, they are usually a little bit buzzed. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean that in a good way. Yes. Yeah. I mean, because we always talk about how exciting it is to give and how much uh, um, adrenaline you get from being generous. You do, and you never regret it. No one walks away from giving whether it be to an organization or a school or church or whatever they're there for, you never regret that money. You never regret what you gave because that's not going to make a hole in your pocket somewhere else. God uses that and he blesses that. Yeah, I'm completely overwhelmed by the generosity Mm -hmm. here at Faith Radio. So when we do our our three-day fundraiser in the spring or in the fall, it's incredibly emotional because our adrenaline is always sky high because you have people who are are giving these incredibly generous gifts. And as they come in, you start to feel overwhelmed with what people are doing and the difference they're making. So you're at a live event seeing expressions, seeing people raise their hand with their number on it. And what are some of the surprises you've had in your 10 years of auctioneering? One, oh, I've had a lot. (laughs) Um, But one that really comes to mind when we're thinking about the generosity of a crowd, I worked with an organization one time, and it was a a cancer organization, and there was a child in the crowd who'd lost their mother to this cancer, Mm. and she wanted to do something. She was probably about seven years old at the time, so she had gone door to door in her neighborhood. And she asked if they would be willing to donate money to this organization. And she went door to door throughout her whole neighborhood, raised, it was $37.44, which the kind of stingy neighbors, but whatever. Like (laughs) She worked her tail off to do that. And we featured her story and she was there with her dad and it was really emotional. And as we were doing this moment, I... You know, we'd had those ten thousand dollar donors, five thousand, twenty five hundred, kind of going down. I just looked at this girl who was there. She was sitting on the edge of her chair. Well, actually, she was on her knees. I remember it so vividly. She's so little. <laughs> she just sit on her knees, watching as people were giving. And I just felt this little like prick inside me, saying, "You know, we need to honor her." And so I walked up to her, and I brought the crowd all their attention to her. And I said, she has gone around and worked her tail off to raise $37.44. Isn't that amazing? Everyone agreed. That's Mm -hmm. amazing, right? For a seven-year-old to go ahead and really put that much energy into generosity. And I then asked the crowd if they would be willing to match her generosity, if they would honor her by also giving $37 and 44 cents. And I have never seen such high participation in a room. (laughs) Like it was real close to 100% participation, right? Like if you take the couples and put them together in the room and the (laughs) mobile bidding people were not so happy with me because, you know, I threw a curveball at them, but they were happy when they got the revenue coming through that. And it, it, while it wasn't even the biggest part of the fundraising for the evening, it brought the whole audience together and that energy with them. Uh, everyone left just so high. They oh, left feeling amazing and they felt like they did something huge. Even the people who gave, you know, $10,000 to start, that's not what they felt proud of. They felt <laughs> proud because they made an impact with this little girl. Yeah. Uh, sir, what are, have been some of the more extravagant things you have auctioned off and maybe one of the most unusual items? 
Okay. Because uh, I remember being at an event once where they had this eight-week-old black lab puppy. Yes. And that was about as cute as it as I've ever seen. Yes. Yeah, and that went pretty fast, actually. Yeah, the puppies. People love puppies. Yeah. That's what I hear. We've had, I've sold lots of puppies. We we are um, always making sure that they, they have the proper people around them taking care of them. Um, lots of trips. Uh, I remember early on when I was first getting started, this one always sticks out to me because it felt like so much at the time. Uh, we had an opportunity to tour Jay Leno's garage. Cool. Yeah. Oh, I would have loved that. I know. Well, yeah. and the bidders did as well. And so it was one of my earlier events, like 10 plus years ago. And there was a newlywed couple in the audience, and she just was like new to that newlywed money. And she <laughs> <laughs> raised it. And she it sold for like $35,000 just for an opportunity to go in and see the garage. Uh huh. Um, so that was fun. Another one that I actually do at m- a lot of my events, which it's going to sound so cheesy and even saying it out loud, I'm like, I know it's cheesy people. It's really cheesy. I like to start my auctions off with selling a hundred dollar bill. What does that mean? What does that mean? It's yes. like literally a $100 bill. Uh, because when I went to auction school, they were like, so when you do a live auction, when you're doing fundraisers, you got to pick an item that's going to be your sacrificial lamp. Okay, like it's not going to raise, it's what it's worth, it's never going to hit like its retail value, but you just have to sell it because you got to warm the crowd up. And I'm like, that doesn't work. Like, I'm not going to not raise more money. So I thought, you know, let's start with a $100 bill. And so that always goes for retail value. And in fact, usually it goes for twice retail value or five times or 10 times retail value. And it's so fun to sell because we started off at, you know, $25. And we quick it, quickly work it up to $100. And everyone's like, yay, okay, we're at $100, got a $100 bill. And then I ask for $125. Mm-hmm. And then there's usually dead silence or a laugh. That usually gets a laugh, yeah. actually, because they're like, oh, what a funny joke. She's asking $125 for $100. And I'm like, it's not a joke. I'm here to take your money. And they eventually, you'll get those brave hands up and realizing, oh, yeah, this is a fundraiser. Right. $125, $150. Um, so that's a really fun one that I sell, and the most I've ever sold that for is thirty nine hundred. Oh my! For a hundred dollar bill. For a hundred dollar bill. Wow, that's some generous people. It, very generous. Very people. generous. Yeah. And so it's always fun to set it and just set the expectation that we're here to raise more money, and it does. It increases the revenue on the items after that as well, because mm-hmm. we've already set the expectation. Yeah. So Sarah, how has God participated in your career as an auctioneer? How has He led you through this? along this journey? Oh man, where hasn't he led me through it? I mean, I think just from the very beginning, he's ordained this whole journey for me. The fact that he even set this in, in my sights, because like I mentioned at the beginning of the program, I wasn't supposed to be an auctioneer. Like I don't come from an auction family. Uh, I had been to literally one auction before I pursued it Wow! and just had this moving strong enough to follow it. And I just did. I just had to. I don't, I don't really have any bigger explanation for that other than I was given this idea and I can only assume it came as leading from the Lord. And, um, in my naivety was just obedient to it because Mm -hmm. I'm like, we're just going to do this. This is what we're doing now. And then when I got into it, I just realized, wow, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I mean, you're a performer as well. So you kind of know, 
right? When you're Mm -hmm. in it and when you're doing it, you know that you are exactly where you're supposed to be. You are in your calling. You're doing what God created you to do. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's almost like falling in love. Like This is it. (laughs) Okay. Right? Is that too dramatic for you? No, no. It's it's, uh, Thanksgiving. I mean, it's, uh, listen to me, it's uh, Valentine's Valentine's Day. Day. We're working in the romance. We want to give Thanksgiving, right? Right, for Valentine's Day. I'm trying to salvage my mistake here. By using the word in a unique way. Um, no, that's really strong. It's really powerful. And it's, I'm curious about your your life before. Did you have, were you an outgoing kind of personality? Were you like in theater and high school? Or in, I mean, it takes a little courage to yeah, stand up in front of a crowd and then use a auctioneer voice technique, right? Is right. that what we call it? Sure. What do, big we, what call, do we call it? Chant, whatever you want. A big call, the yeah. chant. Okay, chant. these are words auction I don't chant. know. Auction yes. chant. Yeah. There we go. Auction so chant. To introduce that in front of a live audience with a microphone, uh, that kind of takes some confidence. Where'd that come from? <laughs> I don't know if it's confidence or stupidity <laughs> uh, or just <laughs> lack of self awareness. <laughs> Who knows? Um, no, I I was not in theater. Um, I knew from a youngish age I wanted to speak. Like I I was really only good at public speaking classes in high school. <laughs> That's it. And I remember even saying to my mom, "Mom, when I grow up, I'm going to be a public speaker." Okay. <laughs> and she was like, "So, Sarah, um, yeah, you know, you have to have something to speak about. Like <laughs> you had to like you have to have like overcome something. And turns out you just need to know how to count." And you can speak now, yeah. right? So that is what worked for me. But I always felt like that's just where my giftings yeah. were, were yeah. in front of a microphone on stage in front of people. Yeah. So we are learning about a profession today, and the profession is auctioneering. My uh, special guest is Sarah Knox. She's been in the business for 10 years. We're going to take a little break, and we'll be right back. the show. It's so nice to be talking to Sarah Knox today. She's a professional auctioneer. And here on the show, I wanted to start learning about other people's professions. I find what people do for work is absolutely fascinating. And I think once you know how a person goes about their job and how they come to do what they do and how the Lord leads them in their profession and and helps them throughout their career, it's very encouraging. Um, I would imagine, Sarah, you probably pray before you step up onto the, onto the stage? Oh, every time. <laughs> every mm-hmm. time. Because, when I, I mean, it's a public job. Mm-hmm. And so I, I want to look good, right? And I want them to raise a lot of money. And it's one of those things where you're like, e- the only way that I know that we, that I know we're going to raise a lot of money is if we just give it to God. Mm-hmm. And that's, I, I just don't know what else to do besides submit it before him because he can move the hearts of the people Amen. and yeah. he can also give me words to say. I mean, there's so many times I'm on stage and I'm just like, wow, that came out of my mouth. Who knew I was smart enough to say that <laughs> exactly. or funny enough to say that? Exactly. And I, I just walk off and I'm like, that wasn't even me. That yeah. who, where did that come from? Yeah. But sometimes with the clients too, it's nice if they're a, a Christian organization yeah. that you can 
pray with them before you start the event. Yes. How I many gotta, times does that happen? A lot. Oh, it's so fun. And we, yeah. yeah, we start the dinner off with prayer. We can start the fundraising off with prayer. I did a virtual event earlier this year where we kicked off the virtual event with 24 hours of prayer. So people within their their supporters had committed and signed up to an hour of prayer for the 24 hours leading up to their virtual event. Mm-hmm. And so that was so fun to step in and be a part of that and come into this group that was just already they they just placed it before God. Mm-hmm. And it was it was bigger than the fundraising itself. I mean, they were really there for a mission and it, I mean, we made a big impact. Yeah. Yeah. This is a uh, question I think we both know the answer to, but I'm going to let you answer mm-hmm. it. How many uh, live auction items would you suggest to someone having an event? Yeah. For a fundraiser, I would yeah. keep it at about five to six live auction items. Yeah. yeah. It used to be more. Now we're keeping it shorter. You know, the five is great. Yeah. Because sometimes there's been events I've been to where there's been 12 plus mm-hmm. event um, items to sell. And usually it goes too long and the energy starts to dissipate. And yes. right about the time they want to save the best for last, most of the energy is gone along with a lot of people they've left by then too. Yeah. And that can happen. And it's, it's hard to say as the auctioneer, because I'm like, obviously I'm entertaining enough to keep course, your whole audience you the are, whole yes. time. Yes. Uh, but it just is the way of it, right? When you're having these items, it's, say you have five items and 300 people, yes. only five people get to walk away with those items. So right. you are only focusing on such a small percentage of your audience, which is why I like to focus on what we call the fund and need or that yes. giving moment, the ask, because that's really where we can empower and engage your yeah. entire audience. Yeah. And timing is critical. I mean, I've Huge. been to a, a million events where if the dinner runs a little bit late mm-hmm. and all of a sudden there's uh, more business that they do uh, uh, and that takes longer than they thought, by the time the live auction happens, it's way too late. That's right. Yeah. So you got to be very careful when you when you construct an event and make sure that you don't uh, overproduce it. Don't overproduce it. Yeah. Right. Because right. sometimes if you do one event a year, you think, well, we have to have all these people make their contributions and have their voice. Mm-hmm. And then it's overproduced. That's right. Yeah. And you can come up with creative ways to honor those people. Yes, you can. And really make sure that they are appreciated and heard. But you want to be focusing on your mission, sharing your story with your audience and empowering your audience to become a part of that and partner in that because yeah. they want to. Yeah. That's why they're there. Yeah. So when you went to auction school, tell me about your teacher, the one that you were most drawn to or who you learned the most from. Ooh, that's good. Um, I mean, all of them were so good. Paul, uh, Paul C. Bear was kind of the head of the auction school at the time. Uh-huh. Um, most just, of them were southerny men. Southerny men. Southerny men. So <laughs> if I do my chant, you'll hear a little bit of a twang to it, just strictly because that's what I learned, yeah. right? What's wrong with that? Too? Uh, <laughs> right? You know? Nothing's wrong. No, and it gives people right. what they want, right? Yeah. Even though I'm like so Minnesotan that <laughs> it just throws them off. Did you grow up here in the Twin Cities? I did. Okay. I did. So you got a little bit of southern twang in your chant. Yes. Oh, boy. A little bit. Yeah. It just well, rolls I'm dying. off easy. I'm dying to hear a little sample 
follow the chant. Yeah, should we do it? I, I, why not? I mean, let's let's give it a whirl. All right, should we pretend we have a $100 bill here? All right, here's a $100 bill. <laughs> All right, let's sell it. I'm going to start it off at $25 and $30 bill, $30 and $35 bill, $35 and $40 bill, $40 and $50 bill, $50 and $55. We have $55 and $60 and $60 bill, $65 and $70, You got it, $75 We have $80, now $90. We have $90 and $100. Let's see, $100. We're selling it, going once, twice, sold. Oh, nice. I'm raising my hand, by the way. I yeah, just bought 100 bucks. About a, it's, it was your own $100. Yeah, so, so I you, guess it, I broke even, it's right? Good. It's yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what's your year been like during COVID? Oh, wow. Awesome. Um, <laughs> well, you know, like most people in March, I had a Monday where my phone was ringing off the hook and my inbox was going full with all my clients pulling out of their events. Oh, yeah. For the year. Yeah. Lovely. So it's been very interesting. Um, but we've transitioned into virtual events where we still engage an audience and are able to tell their story in an effective way that still raises money. And I've been actually shocked to find out that uh, they are profitable and mm-hmm. nonprofits Fantastic. are raising the same amount. Yeah. What's been very encouraging. I've, I've been involved in several that have had really a, an amazing mm-hmm. turnout. So it's been it's been wonderful. Sarah Knox, you're a delight. Thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about the life of an auctioneer. It's really interesting. Yes. Well, thanks for having me. It's fun to be on. Yeah. You can head over to sarahtheauctioneer.com if you want to learn more about Sarah. sarahtheauctioneer.com. That wraps up our time with Sarah. I'll take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.